Good morning. Uh, Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word together. Our God in heaven, we we do ask again for your help as we come to the scriptures, as we come to this passage. Uh, Lord, please, would you be our teacher? Would you be our guide? Would you uh, be the one who opens up our hearts so that we might receive your word of life and we might live? Uh, We need so much of your help. Help us to concentrate, help us to think, most of all, help us to respond in faith to your son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good, isn't it? Because it looks like it is all done, doesn't it? Uh, COVID is defeated, apparently, uh, this week. Um, the expectation is that all restrictions will be lifted. We can move on into a time of peace and harmony and security forever and ever. Amen. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Um, perfect security. Um, no threat of war or anything like that going on. Um, uh, early in the 18th century, there was a young man called John, um, and John was very fearful, uh, fearful because um, his, well, well it, it was a time when um, smallpox was, was pretty, um, uh, what's the word, it, it was everywhere, um, it, it, it was threatening, um, it was bad, um, and uh, uh, John's girlfriend looked like she had um, smallpox, and so he feared for her. Uh, but, but at that time, there was great hope because of medical sciences. Uh, early in the 18th century, various vaccines were being trialed, smallpox vaccines, different ones were being trialed um, with various results. And it, it was all very um, controversial, the idea of vaccination. Um, and you have this young John who's very fearful for his girlfriend. Well, an older John wrote to young John uh, and he said he hoped the Lord would relieve his fears. And then old John said this, he said, I cannot but compare the practice of inoculation to the wisdom of the inhabitants of a city, which, having a hundred gates exposed to the incursion of surrounded enemies, should employ themselves in stopping one of them carefully and closely up, and then think themselves tolerably safe, though they were somehow necessitated to leave the other 99 wide open. They would at last have a tolerable security that the foe could not enter by that particular gate. I find you have gained but little. You are afraid now... And you were but afraid before. Do you get that? Now faced with, the, with this threat to life, the fear at that time was driving people to put their hope in the medical sciences. Uh, they thought here was a way for them to, to feel a control over their circumstances. And yet the end result was that there are still a whole load of other dangers which they cannot control. And sooner or later they would realize it. And at the end they would be just as afraid as they were at the beginning. It's familiar, isn't it, for us? Very familiar. As we look back over the last couple of years of the coronavirus pandemic, we have faced similar fears and similar challenges. Uh, the, challenge, the question has been, been rattling around, hasn't it? How do we keep control when we cannot have control? It's been bugging us. Uh, the, the, the life-threatening dangers of illness. We've desperately tried to control it. We want to manage the threat and we've had mixed success. We've had the the frustration of of finding we cannot control our plans like we thought we could when we we make plans and then the restrictions change or somebody gets ill or a household needs to isolate and we've had to remake our plans and we've been stretched, haven't we? Stretched between the desire to control what is happening and the reality that what is happening is just happening to us whether we like it or not. And as old John wrote 200 years ago to his friend, you are afraid now and you were afraid before. 
Now, the fears may change, but one fear just replaces another. So we start again, and we try to control it, and we try to manage it, and we end up where we started. And dear friends, let me tell you, it does not need to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way. Another letter was written, not 200 years ago, but 2,000 years ago. It's what we're looking at um, in our Sunday morning series, as Paul wrote to these churches in Galatia, this part of the New Testament. Now, Paul really loved these churches that he wrote to. Uh, these churches, they were new churches, they were made up of new believers, and they'd got, they got so tangled and so terribly confused. Um, they're confused about what faith is. So Paul writes this letter, the letter to the Galatians, to address the problem, and he takes his time with it. He, he, he wants to really carefully challenge them and to correct them. And, and as he does that, he wants to give them a really kind of, a kind of thick understanding, a deep, developed understanding of the vital distinction between faith and works, between believing and doing. Uh, when Paul went to them, he taught them, as he had learned from the Lord Jesus himself, that they will be saved by faith, saved by trusting Christ. But after Paul went away, they'd started to think that they would be saved by their works. They started to think their relationship with God is based on the good things they do. Now, now, now why would that teaching have been so appealing to them? Why would it have been so appealing? Clear the ground a bit. Uh, well, I, I, was, I was struck this week about thinking about one of the cities in Galatia that Paul visited, the city of Lystra. Um, you read about in Acts 13, when Paul went to this city, it was a chaotic visit. He went there, started to speak about Jesus. There was a lame man who was healed. When the lame man was healed, everything went wild. People started shouting out in their local dialect. So Paul wouldn't have immediately understood what they were saying. But everyone was shouting. What they were shouting was, the gods have come down to us in human form. And they called Barnabas, Paul's friend, Zeus. And they called Paul, Hermes and names of their gods, and they, they've got a temple to Zeus, so they got the priest of Zeus, and he came out, and he had bulls, and he was going to sacrifice to Paul and to Barnabas. And, and Paul can't, can't get at what they're doing. And, and he, he, he barely can restrain them. When he does restrain them, and then they stone him. Um, and what was going on? Well, it's interesting that just not long before Paul went to this place, about 50 years before, that there was a local poet who wrote down this kind of myth, this kind of legend, and the legend was that in times back, um, these two gods, Zeus and Hermes, came to, came to, to the, wor- the world in human form. And they visited the area, and there was a shepherd and his wife who welcomed them, but nobody else showed them hospitality. Uh, nobody else recognized that the gods had come, and so these gods destroyed all of their homes. Now, that was in the mindset of the people of Lystra. Um, and so no wonder they are so eager not to suffer the same fate. So anxious that they don't make the same mistake with these, with these forces that might come. They might catch them unaware. They've got to be aware. They don't want to get caught into that trap. Well, in that town was this church, this new church. This new church that had quickly shifted from Paul's message about faith. Shifted onto a message that it was all down to what they could do. A message that said, there are some rules that you must follow. And that must have really resonated for the people of Lystra. Now, how these people are thinking, how can they manage the capricious forces around them? How can they control their destiny? What can they do to make sure they don't get caught unawares like the people of old? How can they placate their fears? How can they control their anxieties? And the false teaching came in and said, you can control these things by following these rules. And if you follow these rules, you'll be secure against all of your fears. 
Well, it wasn't going to end very well. And it doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way. Last time we looked at the first part of Galatians 3, Galatians 1 to 14, and Paul begins that section saying, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The Galatians had started their Christian life by faith. It's the only way to start a Christian life is by faith. Uh, But Paul says to them, that's how you started. You trusted Christ. And you got included in the great blessings of God and it was by faith. Just like Abraham of old is what we saw last time. He believed God. That's what he did. That's what it took. So Paul says that that's how you started. That's all you need. Why are you now trying to earn it? The only way, Paul said, the only way to get the blessing we don't deserve instead of the curse that we do, the only way is through the curse-bearing death of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. Doing good cannot save, only faith. That was what Paul has just said to them. Now we move on from that into our passage this morning, Galatians three, fifteen to 25. Now in this passage, Paul takes us deeper into that distinction between faith and and works. There are really two points he's making. The first point he wants to describe is the deal. I'm going to call it the deal. Uh, what deal has God made? God's unbreakable, gracious commitment to abundantly bless in the Lord Jesus. The deal. What deal has God made? Uh, and then secondly, well, if God has made this wonderful deal, what is the point of the law? What's the deal? That's our first thing. Verse 15. Follow with me. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Paul is saying, okay, let's try and understand this. Everyday life is full of kind of contractual arrangements. It happens all the time. It happens all the time for us, doesn't it? Uh, This week, um, our front door handle broke after what I think were several valiant attempts to fix it. I decided I needed to replace it. And so what I did was I entered a contractual arrangement through Amazon Um, There was a supplier of goods who was committed to supply what I wanted. I committed to pay the asking price. uh, And that contract was subjected to the whole framework of terms and conditions that we have in our land about the buying and selling of goods. And once I placed the order, it was fixed. And and any changes had to be within the confines of that agreement. It would be covered by those stipulations. We do it all the time, don't we? Uh, Even more so, when someone makes a last will and testimony... That comes into effect when the person dies. At that point, it cannot be changed. Now, if somebody has left all of their money to the, uh, the kind of lonely cat therapy center, and it was just a joke, once they die, that's where the money's going. It's there in the will. It cannot be changed. A Galatian society had similar contracts, covenants. But Paul says, you know how it works. You deal with these things in everyday life. Once the contract is established, it can't be changed. So his point is, how much more when God Almighty commits to do something? That's what Paul's saying. This is the deal. God has entered a contractual arrangement, a a covenant. He's committed himself to do things. Or what's he committed himself to do? What are the terms of his deal? Verse 16. God has made promises to Abraham. Promises spoken to Abraham. What are the promises? Well, verse 18 speaks of them as the inheritance. The inheritance uh, to Abraham through a promise. We touched on this last time. We looked at it last term when we looked at the life of Abraham. These great promises. These promises of an inheritance that are of, that are of seismic significance. 
Uh, Into a a fallen world came these promises. Into a world spiraling out of control came these promises. Into a world that was empty and hopeless, God erupted promises of blessing. Uh, God would restore everything lost from the original paradise. Uh, The whole of creation was going to be renewed. People would would be brought back to dignity. And they would enjoy the blessings of God beyond the agonies of this fallen world. That's Abraham's inheritance. Abraham's hope, we're told, was a city whose designer and builder is God himself. A new creation. A new world where God would wipe away the tears from every eye. A world where suffering and death would be no more. A world where there would be no sin. Where God and man would live together in imperishable bliss. The great promises of inheritance. God promised an inheritance to Abraham. And a crucial part of this deal. Look at the end of verse 18. God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. God, in his grace, gave it. This this deal that God made, it is based on the gracious gift of God. That that means that the, the grounding, the cause of this gift is found in the one who gives, not in the one who receives. Now, the alternative to a gracious gift would be a reward. Uh, when I did my 10-meter swimming um, challenge when I was younger, I got a badge and I sewed it onto my towel. Remember those badges you sewed onto towels? Um, I got the badge as a reward for what I had done. It was not a gracious gift. It was a reward. Uh, another alternative to, to a gracious gift would be a wage. And when I did my paper round, at the end of the week, I got a little packet with some money in. It was my payment for what I had done. It was a wage, an exchange from the services that I had given. It was not a gracious gift. A gracious gift has nothing to do with the achievements or the labours of the person who receives it. A gracious gift. A gracious gift will never say, what have I done to deserve this? A gracious gift will, will, will never say, what can I do to pay this back? God has made a deal. He has promised graciously to give an inheritance and what else about this deal to whom did God make the promise verse 16 the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed scripture does not say and to seed meaning many people but and to your seed meaning one person who is Christ the promises were directed towards a certain person in history one who would come among the descendants of Abraham, the one who is the Christ. Now this seed promise, it started long before Abraham, right back in Eden, right in Genesis 3, after sin came into the world and as God was, was dealing with it, God spoke to the serpent, he spoke to the snake, and he said it will be the seed of the woman who will come and crush your head. The seed would come and would undo all those powers of darkness that had entered the world with the fall. Now the promise of the seed repeated to Abraham, repeated again as we read through the Old Testament. Through the line of Abraham would come this one who would restore blessing to all the nations. Now these promises, says Paul, spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That is the Christ. You see, all this blessing, all this inheritance, all this great, glorious future ahead, it will be found in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. It's all in Christ. The whole restoration, the whole rescue, the whole redemption, the whole riches of glory, it is all contained in Christ. All the promises of God. Everyone is yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, so God made a deal, Paul says. The terms of the deal is God's unbreakable, gracious commitment to abundantly bless us in Christ. And, and Paul's point here, he's making, he said, that's not up for debate. That that's not God's kind of starting point in the negotiation. God has put this covenant into effect. The terms are fixed. It cannot be changed. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, helpful in verse 17, you see. What I mean by this, <laughs> there we go. What does he mean? What I mean is this, the law. Now, now what's, he, what's he meaning when he says the law? He's referring to uh, the moment when Abraham's descendants had multiplied, they'd grown into a great nation, they became slaves in Egypt, God rescued them out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai he spoke his laws, he gave his commands for how they were to live. That's what Paul means. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Isn't that clear? The terms of the deal are fixed. And so when the law came, whatever the law was coming to do, it was not changing the terms of the promise. The law cannot make it so that the inheritance um, doesn't rest on a gracious promise. It, it would be like if, you know, if someone comes and, um, and gives you an amazing, amazing gift. Uh, Daniel Gout, it was your birthday, wasn't it? How old are you? 17, so you get a car. So someone comes and gives Daniel a car. You can drive now, you have a car. Brilliant, G- give you a car. Tell you what, we'll, we'll pay all the insurance and the taxes and the petrol for and the next 10 years. It's yours. Completely unexpected, a totally gracious gift. Go away and enjoy it. And then six months later, Daniel gets a letter in the post. A bill for his car. He's got to pay. The free gift is not free at all. It wasn't grace, it was a con. Paul is saying that's not how God treats us. God doesn't change the terms. It's promises by grace. It's only by grace. It's always by grace. So when the law comes much later, it doesn't change the fact that it's a gracious promise. That's the deal God makes. Well, having been pretty clear about that, Paul then has to ask, well, what about the law? What about the law? He asked that. He asked two questions. In fact, verse 19, why then was the law given at all? And then verse 21, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Now, now, Paul answers these questions by telling us what the law can do and what the law cannot do. What cannot the law do? Well, verse 21. If a law had been given that could impart life, righteousness would certainly have come by the law. And Paul's answering this second question, is the law against the promise? He says, the law is not against the promise, absolutely not, because the law cannot do what the promise does. He says, the law cannot impart life. And literally, it says, it hasn't got the power to give life. You see, there's a whole blanket of deadness which is suffocating humanity. It's done so ever since sin came in. And the law is not designed to budget uh, the law cannot bring life. The law isn't for that. The promise does that, not the law. Now, the law cannot bring life. Secondly, the law cannot make people righteous. That's what's needed for life. Uh, death reigns because there's no one righteous, not even one. No one does good. Everyone has turned aside. We all have. And a, a set of rules can't change it. The law cannot bring life because it cannot do anything about the cause of death. 
People are facing eternal death because we're not righteous enough for life and glory. The law can't help. The promise can. The promise can bring justification, says Paul, a declaration of righteousness by faith in Christ. The law is powerless to do that. It cannot do that. Never meant to do that. So the law is not against the promise. It's not trying to do what the promise does. It's like if I were to um, give you a printer and you tried to cook eggs with it. Uh, very soon you would ruin the printer and you wouldn't have any eggs, would you? Um, but that doesn't mean, just because the printer isn't good at cooking eggs, doesn't mean it's not useful for something. Just don't use it to cook eggs. What is the law good for? What can it do? Lots of things it cannot do. What can it do? Verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. That's what Paul says. A transgression means, it means to go beyond a set limit, go beyond a permitted boundary. And I think the point that Paul's making is a bit like this. Now, if we would probably all agree that a good principle from the Lord is that we love our neighbour as ourselves, that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a right thing. And now, if we apply that to our lives, we love our neighbours as ourselves, that will mean we will take care when we drive our cars, so we're not a danger to others. Now, the purpose of a speed limit is to codify that principle of protection. Now, that's what a speed limit is for, isn't it? To ensure that we keep each other safe, because we are to love our neighbours as ourselves. And yet, when a speed limit is put in, with the speed limit there, then our attitude toward the safety of others becomes much more clear. A driver who drives at 50 miles an hour down Gordon Road when the school is coming out is not loving their neighbour. The speed limit makes how clear they are not loving their neighbour. That's what a law does. It shows how the sin in our hearts is, is a direct violation of the will of God. The verse 22 says something similar. It says, um, Scripture, that's um, God's word revealing God's will, Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. It's what the law does. It, it brings our plight into focus. Helps us to see how sinful sin is. Now, the law isn't given to save. It's given to show how much people need to be saved. But, but it wasn't just to show our need. Not, not just to show how much we needed to be saved. It was also given to bring us, to land us heavily back upon the promise. Now even when the law was given, when the law was given, Moses was up on the Mount Sinai. It was very dramatic. There was thunder, there was lightning, there was a great big cloud. And the, the people were waiting below. And the people's first response to the law was to break every command by making a golden calf and worshipping it. The law was given and broken in the same moment. And that, that failure shows right from the start, people have not, they don't have it in them to do what it takes to follow God's commands. And yet that moment of failure, right at the beginning, was met with grace. God didn't give up on his people. He didn't leave his people alone. The law was never intended to bring salvation. Now, what was the law for? Verse 19. Paul says, The law was given until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Until the seed had come. Now, the law had inbuilt limitations. That's I think, what it means by given through angels entrusted to a mediator. And then it says, A mediator, however implies more than one party, but God is one. Not quite sure what that means, to be honest. Um, commentators say there are, I think one commentator says there are 150 options for what that might mean, um, which isn't that helpful. Um, 
I have a few thoughts, but I'm not going to say them now because it will just confuse me even more. I'm not that sure um, is where we'll go. But I think the point that Paul's making is sure. That the law is given until the seed comes. That the law is given to lead the way to the coming of Christ. Now verse 22 says, The scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, the coming of that faith in Christ Jesus, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So what the law can do, the law is a guardian. And the idea is of someone who is um, responsible for a young child in their kind of early, early development, preparing them for maturity. Now, the law functions like that. It's a guardian until Christ came. Or, or even it's a guardian towards Christ, leading toward Christ, preparing for Christ, with Christ as the destination. Now, everything that the law contains, everything the law aims at is Christ. Because verse 22, verse 22 says, the promise, remember the promise? God's unbreakable, gracious commitment to abundantly bless in Christ. The promise was made to Christ. And the promise is realized with Christ coming. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we are are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Saying that there is no good thing that God holds back from us. All the, the treasuries of a heavenly realm beyond our comprehension. That they are fully and unreservedly open to us. And we can't say too much about the blessings of God. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, all of these blessings, they are yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the location of all God's blessing. The whole whole redemptive purpose of everything is located in Christ. God has poured out the, the infinite whole of heaven's goodness and he's emptied it fully upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what was promised to Abraham. The gracious, unbreakable commitment to abundantly bless and put all the blessings in Christ. And then Christ came in fulfillment. And Christ came and in fulfillment he died the curse bearing death. And Christ in fulfillment was, was raised to the blessing of new creation life. So verse 22, what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Not that faith is anything in itself. Faith is about what it takes hold of. And what faith takes hold of is Christ. Christ. Christ who is the place of blessings. All the blessings. The, the blessings can only come to us in Christ. Look, that means that if we're sitting here this morning and you are not trusting Jesus Christ, then you do not have these blessings. And if you don't know what it is to be trusting Jesus Christ then don't rest until you do. We cannot expect anything good from God apart from Jesus Christ. And the law, the law is a guardian to lead us to Christ. And it does that. One of the ways it does it is by making clear our sin. Now the law shows us, the more we reflect on the law, it shows us that, our, that we're helpless. We're helpless in our badness. When we consider the commands of God, they are formidable if we want to use them to prove ourselves. And and the more we think on it, the weight of the law begins to crush us. And it begins to drive us to despair. 
And the commands, they come again and again and they're unrelenting. And our sin-weakened flesh cannot abide it. And when we find ourselves under that kind of conviction, we find our transgressions exposed to the Lord's, the Lord's high demands. And we feel we might despair. We have a guardian in the law who comes alongside and pushes it a little bit harder upon us. Who pushes it further and further and further until it pushes us right into the arms of the Lord Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Lord Jesus who says, Come to me, sinners, because I am your friend. Come to me with the curse of your sin because I have a death which answers that. Come to me with all of your brokenness because I poured out my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. I am Jesus, he says, and I've come to save my people from their sins. And it is finished. The Lord points us towards it, leads us towards Christ. So what will we do with that this morning? Now maybe the message for us this morning is is simply this. That God has graced you in Christ. So trust him. You can trust him. Now you remember those converts in Lystra? Desperate to control their destiny. Fearful of what might happen if they got it wrong. And so then this idea came that they could obey their way into God's good books. And this, this false teaching gave them the appearance that they could, they could control it. And they craved it. But it couldn't deliver. And it needn't be that way. I wonder if we find ourselves stretched in a similar way. Torn between the desire to control and the reality that we can't. In the middle of um, another Six Nations campaign, um, I'm noticing again how the players are all children, aren't they? Which must mean that I'm getting old. Um, And having to admit again that I'm not going to play rugby for England. Um, When I was a teenager... It was unlikely, but it was possible. And when I was in my kind of early 20s, um, you know, I could imagine being suddenly discovered, this kind of raw but remarkable talent. Um, but I'm past it. I'm just past it. There's no chance, no chance at all. Uh, maybe it's a midlife crisis. I, I read this week, a midlife crisis is this. It's essentially about the disappointment of not being what you'd wanted and losing that youthful sense that the future is your oyster. Now, how do we react to that? The lack of control. Now, a midlife crisis isn't a disappointment. It's a desperate trying to get it back, isn't it? Hanging on, harking back, trying to stop the biological clock from ticking. Because we crave the control and we fear what we don't. We do it with our health, don't we? We want to control the knowing of things. If someone could just name it and just tell me what what I need to do, then I can take it into my own hands and I can secure the door against that one threat. And think I've got control and I think my anxieties are at bay, but they just slip in through one of the other doors, don't they? We do it with our relationships. Obsessively, we, we, we ask the what ifs. What do we need to do to make it right, to, to control it? Where does all the craving for control leave us? Now, old John Sage comment, you're afraid now and you were afraid before. One fear just replaces another, doesn't it? We go round and round, grasping for control, trying to manage it and ending up just where we began. Our relationship with the living God isn't any different, is it? Uh, When we feel our sin, we just want to put it right. What do I need to do? When we fear death, which we all do, 
We try to drown the fear in our good deeds or in baseless platitudes, in vague sentiments. And we squash it and suppress it, but it keeps bouncing back. And all of our wrangling and all of our doing and uh, even doing the commands of God, it's never designed to give real lasting peace to our souls. Now, life, life, never, life was never and will never be found by submitting to the rules. The law's not for that. That's what the promise is for. So when we feel a crushing compulsion to take control, find ourselves trying to fix it, trying to fix our lives and trying to make ourselves deserving, trying to manipulate the faceless forces, trying to force God's hand, trying to give God a reason to love us, or despairing when we realise we never could. Could we remember? Could we tell ourselves? That's not how God works. That's not the deal God has made. The deal God has made is his unbreakable, gracious commitment to abundantly bless us in Christ. Now, in a world of broken promises, this is a promise we can, we can rely on. It's sealed in the blood of Jesus. You know, I, I just wonder how often we, we just doubt that the basis for God dealing with us is grace. It was right there back in the law. In Deuteronomy 7, God said, you're my treasured possession. It says, as the God didn't set his affection on you because you, because you were greater than everyone else. God, God, God did it because he loved you. It's not because of your righteousness, it says. That's grace. God chooses to bless, not because we're great, because we're not. Not because we're good, because we're not. But because he is. And if we doubt that, we're just going to be slow. Slow to come to him. Now, as I was preparing this this week, one evening I lost it with one of my children um, it, was, it was just wrong. I was hard, I was harsh, I was unfair. Um, exploded at them. I, 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 I sought their forgiveness. And then I thought, I just physically can't go back to my study and look at the Bible and think about what I'm going to say to you. Just felt awful, felt rubbish, felt dirty, felt like such a failure. How can I look at the Bible and tell you what it says when I'm like this? Do you know what's going on in my heart in that moment? I am doubting, seriously doubting, the basis of how God deals with me. I force myself back up the stairs to my study because I have to remind myself with every step, God does not treat me as my sin deserves. God's already, Christ has already paid in full. God does not accept me because I'm good. He accepts me because of Christ. I suspect we just so often neglect Christ because we doubt grace. We can't find Christ interesting enough to keep our attention. Our love for him is little because we just don't know him. Don't know him as the gracious Lord. You don't know the time will come when Christ will be revealed in all of his glory and we will see him as he is. And I wonder if in that moment that it might break our hearts that we so often neglected him. Not that our neglect of him dilutes his mercy. That's the wonder of it, isn't it? The wonder. Isn't the wonder that we make such a poor return of love to him and yet he loves us? Just keeps loving us. And we, we go through a day, maybe we go through, through many days and we have little thought of him and the thoughts we have of him are little. And yet all the while, he, he's right there now in heaven. His thoughts for us are constant. His prayers for us are not ceasing. Now Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And then he says, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. 
He is praying for you right now. You're always on his mind, always in his prayers. The unbreakable promises of God, they're based on grace. Gracious promises, you can't earn them. can't deserve them, but you can receive them in Christ. Now God accepts us on the basis of grace and grace alone. God accepts us. It's a pathetic way of saying it, isn't it? Isn't it? So weak and small, accepts us. The, the, the words we have are so packed, aren't they? Blessing, promise, inheritance, righteousness, power to make alive, justified. Everything that belongs to Christ is ours. Nothing less than that. And it's all of grace. And it's not because we're great. And it's not because we're going to be good. It's because, it's because he loves us, isn't it? So that means that we can say these things. We can say, we can say, I am not accepted because I'm worthy, but I am worthy because I'm accepted. And we can build our lives on that, can't we? Let's take a moment of quiet and then we'll pray together.